welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And if you have been listening for the last few weeks, I hope you have. If you have not, grab yourself a nap. Um, For our conclusion today of Luke chapter 21 is a culmination of everything that we have been learning throughout this Olivet Discourse uh, over the last six weeks. You know, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, it is a prophetic discourse uh, outlining events prior to, immediately prior to, and surrounding His glorious return. And, and this is the final opportunity that uh, we are going to have to discuss eschatology or the end times for a considerable length of time. Uh, next, we're going to retrain our focus in chapter 22 on the betrayal by Judas Iscariot and uh, the events surrounding that, and then, of course, the unfolding of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, uh, which will take us through the end of Luke and about uh, until Christmas time. And that's about when we'll wrap up. Beginning next year, I still favor Ecclesiastes as our next pursuit. Uh, There isn't a lot of eschatology in that. So today's the day. Today is the day. Uh, And my goal, honestly, is to uh, provoke you to think critically about eschatology, about the end times. Uh, Not to be critical of my message, but to think rationally. Critically, use our noggins, as we've been taught uh, by our parents. Then you may criticize, if need be. Um, Part of what I propose today concerning Christ's return could be wrong. But it's probably not all wrong, all right? There remains notable disagreement among Christians about how the end times will unfold. Many are getting things wrong. So to begin, uh, perhaps by by tipping you all back on your heels just a little bit uh, to invite us to listen carefully rather than sit and pout angrily, um, let, let me remind us that during the past six weeks, we have discovered that Hal Lindsey, also an alum of Dallas Seminary, who, who was once hailed an expert in eschatology, is now regarded by most theologians as a goof. As a goof, it's it's true. Uh, Much of his life's work concerning the end times is now either in the trash heap or has been relocated to the science fiction department of the library. That's that's just true. It's just true. Um, It didn't withstand the test of time. One of the more brilliant theological minds of a previous generation and past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, John Wolverd, uh, he was a biblical languages, languages expert, especially on Greek. Brilliant man. 
He got caught up in the prophecy mania of the 70s and of the 80s and published a failed prediction of the rapture. To his credit, he only tried once. He said, I'm done with that. I'm not not going there again. Um, So can smart, very accomplished people get things wrong? Oh, it it can happen. John MacArthur, uh, my favorite preacher, outstanding theologian, he can't accept the old heavens and earth passing away and a new heavens and an earth, uh, new earth taking their place on the day of the Lord as Jesus and the Apostle Peter describe. So MacArthur has formulated a renewed heavens and a renewed earth model to delay the onset of the new heavens and the new earth for about a thousand years. And he says so with conviction, so he must be right. When pressed about this, about Second Peter chapter 3 and, and how it's possible for a new heavens and a new earth to be delayed, Pastor Weiler is eschatology professor at Dallas Seminary this spring acknowledged. We aren't exactly sure how that works out, all right? That same professor also stated to the class that uh, during a future millennial reign of Christ, he's not exactly sure where uh, us glorified saints will be during those thousand years. What? What? And Gerald does not recall the pretext for that statement, but there seems to emerge, uh, repeatedly emerge a nagging question uh, of how the resurrected and glorified saints are going to dwell on earth alongside unregenerate reprobates during that time. Uh, So now apparently it's being proposed by brilliant minds. Maybe we aren't even here during that period. Is it possible for really smart people to disagree and air. Oh, it's possible. It's possible. Uh, the Nicene Creed and the great creeds, as you look at them, didn't, didn't delineate a, a lot of the end time stuff and exactly how it unfolds. They focused very much on the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the, um, the fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified died and was buried. On the third day he rose again and he ascended unto heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And and that's that's about where they left it, all right? Um, This I know for sure, and these are things that I'd like us to know for sure today, some of them. Christ is coming. He's going to judge the wicked. He is going to establish a literal kingdom on earth. Scripture also says that when he appears, we will be like him. That means imperishable. That which is perishable will put on that which is imperishable. And we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord always. Okay? So so when God's Son returns to earth, and, and he will, and he will, we will be present with him. All right? Just to clarify that and not leave people hanging from uh, what I said about Pastor Weiler's uh, professor. We will be with him. 
I know where we'll be. One weakness with eschatology is that once you've painted yourself into a corner, very rigidly put up parameters, uh, whether you're an institution or a church or an individual, few people are willing to step back into the wet paint and reassess. I'm willing to do that. I am willing to do that. I hope you are as well, and that you are willing to listen to my propositions patiently and then to discern whether there is scriptural merit to what I say, because that's ultimately what counts. That, that is what counts. Um, as I begin reading our passage from Luke chapter 21, it's going to be a little different today, probably the first time I've ever done this, I'm not going to return to this passage. Um, we've been through this. I'm going to read it. Uh, please offer particular interest as to how Jesus once again once again warns his disciples to be on guard and to remain alert for that day of judgment that falls suddenly, like a trap in this passage upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth. This is the day of the Lord. It is his parousia, his coming, when Christ returns, when God's angels are sent to gather his elect from one end of the sky to the other, Uh, All the corners of the earth, Matthew 24, verse 31, just moments before he pours out judgment, final judgment on this last day. So here it is, Luke 21, beginning in verse 34. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things which are about to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple and listen to him. Again, this is the, the close of Wednesday on Passion Week. The close of Wednesday. Jesus' repeated warnings throughout Luke, throughout Luke, have been beware, be on guard, be dressed in readiness, be alert. In Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. You also must be ready, um, he says, uh, because the day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, in, in verse 37 of Matthew 24, nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming, again, the parousia, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming, again, parousia of the Son of Man. Um, Jesus also insists this day will be as the day was with Lot, you know, residents of Sodom were carrying on and, 
and doing their bad stuff. Enjoying a typical every, every, con, every day, right, actually is what they were doing. That's what they thought they were doing. It was a typical ordinary day for Sodom. Everyday activities. So Luke 17 verse 30 tells us it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So that day that the Son of Man is revealed identifies a moment in time that comes like lightning. Comes like lightning. Second Peter 3 compares, uh, prepares Christians that mockers will be mocking the promise of His coming in that day. Again, parousia, same word again. So Peter also affirms the day of the Lord will come on a typical ordinary day like a thief, a day in which the old heavens and the old earth will be melted down with intense heat. Therefore, Peter instructs Christians to be looking for the hastening of the day of God. Actually, the parousia of God. The coming of Christ. As I stated two weeks ago, none of these passages that I've shared with you can be interpreted in their contexts as a warning for Christians to be watching for a pre-tribulation rapture. That's just a fact. It's just a fact. They are all the parousia, the day of the Lord's return. Uh, then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gets in the action stating, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, again, parousia, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of any, anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Again, you have the parousia and the day of the Lord together. Um, all these passages describe in context the same parousia the same day of the Lord, a day in which Christians are removed suddenly, immediately before a severe judgment upon the earth. Uh, need I emphasize just, just one more time, this day of Christ's return is repeatedly uh, presented as arriving on a day that is a typical, ordinary day. Nobody expects it. Unbelievers don't expect it. Believers don't expect it. This ought to cause anyone to pause and reflect, really. Pause and reflect. Um, we were having dinner with a couple last night. The sun was shining. It was beautiful out. We were near water. And I said, yeah, a day just like today. This quandary has prompted John MacArthur to, without grammatical justification from anything that I can discern, elongate the day of the Lord to encompass a longer period of time, as much as a seven-year period. In, in fact, if you listen to his message on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1-12, through 12, that the one given in 2019, because he has an older one, the one given in 2019, and I encourage you to. He's a very wise man. 
you can sense as you listen how he represents this day of the Lord as virtually synonymous with the tribulation period. Virtually synonymous with it. Um, The final bowls of judgment that we see in Revelation chapter 16, he admits, fall on the day of the Lord. He acknowledges those are judgments of the day of the Lord, but suggests they occur during the final 3.5 years of tribulation before the parousia, before the coming of the Lord. Um, So for him, the tribulation period and the day of the Lord run concurrently. You follow me? They're they're like, in ways, synonymous. Still, Matthew 24 tells us the tribulation will include these things, false Christs and false prophets who arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So at least some of God's elect are in the tribulation period. Of course we are. Scripture says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14.22. Did you realize, did you realize the vast majority of occasions that Scripture mentions the Greek terms tribulation and tribulations. Same Greek word, just a different plural. Tribulation and tribulations. The vast majority of times it is the saints who suffer tribulation. I'm going to give you just a, just a sample here of what it says about the saints. Speaking to his apostles, Jesus says, They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. John 16, In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Romans 5, verse 3. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Romans 8, 35. Will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no. Romans 12, 12. Christians are rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. Revelation 2.9, the church in Smyrna, to them John writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Revelation 7.14, identifying those who are clothed in white, I suspect these are Tribulation martyrs. These are the ones, it says, who come out of the great tribulation. Saints are present again during the great tribulation. Acts 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Ephesians 3, verse 13. I ask you, do not lose heart. Uh, uh, at, at my tribulation, says the Apostle, Paul's, on your beha- uh, Apostle Paul, do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Hebrews 10, verse 32, you endured a great conflict of sufferings being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. I know it's a little long, but by comparison to that, the number of references to tribulation that is reserved exclusively for unbelievers, two. 
two for those who do evil by comparison. Um, in Matthew 24, in verse 29, speaking about the timing of these things, timing of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, Matthew writes, immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Both Matthew and Mark seem to place the day of the Lord uh, as arriving after the tribulation, not concurrent with the tribulation. What we see in Second Thessalonians 2 is, is not that the tribulation and the day of the Lord are synonymous, but that the parousia and the day of the Lord are the same. Or at the same time, not the same thing, but at the same time. The coming of Christ at the judgment uh, of those who are the wicked. Um, there may be a period of increasing tribulation as the Lord draws near. But the day of the Lord and His return follow after the tribulation. That's when the day of the Lord occurs. Uh, We should recognize today. This is something that we fail to recognize as well. We should recognize today is a day of great tribulation for many saints around the world. You know, know, us sitting in our air conditioning and on our, our recliners sometimes forget to think about that of just how great the tribulation is out there. From as early as the apostles, they were being killed. I mean, how much greater tribulation are you looking towards? Um, Many are being put today uh, to death daily. Christ's sheep are being made ready for the slaughter. For some Christians, when they read, you must suffer many tribulations. For some, it means something, all right? When they read this passage as compared to us, Why are Christians then so convinced that increasing tribulation preceding the Lord's return will be uniformly experienced by all Christians on the planet? Why is that? Why is that? I looked into that. When Paul is described as suffering tribulation when he's stoned outside of Lystra, and he says, by through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, were all the Christians stoned? No, Paul was stoned. Think of the horrific localized judgment, the the tribulation that Jesus warned his disciples to flee to the wilderness from, 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem. At least a few Christians were likely swept into that because they had family members, they had husbands, they had those who, who they had to remain with, likely, swept into that slaughter, hanging in there yet... The church in Thessalonica, they read about it in the newspaper. They didn't suffer that tribulation. They didn't even have to flee. They weren't part of that tribulation. Um, American Christians today sit safe while North Koreans suffer tribulation. North Korean Christians. You know, the, in, in, the intensity of tribulation may increase worldwide generally worldwide for all Christians. 
But don't believe that today is not a day of great tribulation for Christians around the world. That would be a mistake for us to conclude. One reason, one reason the final days of tribulation, that final season of tribulation before Christ's return, is considered by some to be experienced uh, uniformly and universally worldwide is because, like MacArthur, they view the day of the Lord as synonymous to the tribulation period, or at least the last three and a half years of it. They therefore take the bowls of wrath from Revelation chapter 16, and they import those worldwide judgments in Revelation chapter 16, those that won't be experienced until the day of the Lord, they import them into the tribulation period. You follow me? So MacArthur in, in, interprets the day of the Lord as a, as a period of God's judgment poured out though over the whole earth with those bowls of wraths for at least three and a half years prior to Christ's return, according to his model. Brilliant man, much smarter than I. But according to his model, the day of the Lord lasts at least 3.5 years Maybe seven. So much for taking the Word of God literally. You follow me? We dispensationalists often say we're the only ones who take the Bible literally. All those other foolish people out there don't take it literal like we do. We make that claim. No, actually everybody takes parts of the Bible figuratively. Everybody. It'd be a lie to say, uh, it'd be dishonest to say that not everybody does. John MacArthur turns a day into three and a half years or more. That's figurative, he's taking it. Um, this is why sincere Christians disagree on this stuff, all right? MacArthur has no grammatical reason to identify that day um, as three and a half or seven years. So I respectfully disagree. I, I do. I believe the day is a day. I truly do, and following are some of the reasons why. Um, as, as a result of our study through Luke, here, here, here's the paradigm that I find myself gravitating towards. The day of the Lord is a final day, marking Christ's sudden return, during which there falls a just catastrophic worldwide judgment upon all believers Everyone who took the mark of the beast on that last day, the bowls of wrath in, in Revelation chapter 16, the, the rivers of blood, every creature dying in the sea, the Euphrates being dried up, men breaking out in sores and being scorched with fire, all occur on that day that the Lord returns. The same day, the heavens and the earth are burned up. Men are scorched too in order to make way for a new heavens and a new earth. Since the angels are represented in Matthew 24 as gathering the elect up into the sky earlier that day, these bold judgments are experienced only by unbelievers. Only by unbelievers. Um, by contrast, the tribulation describes harsh treatment of Christians all around the world. Christians go through tribulation. Tribulation describes a persecution that began with the apostles, continued to be experienced through every generation. 
of Christian. Um, but approaching our Lord's return probably grows with intensity around the globe. But not necessarily with uniform intensity. It, it, it may get really bad for us. It, it may. But rest assured, it's already a great tribulation for some. How have I landed on these assumptions? Is, is it due to some book that I read? And, or was it a video series that I looked to? Uh, no, no. It, it, it is partially uh, due to a, a long-standing doctrine called the imminence of Christ. That, that is the belief that since the close of the apostolic era, nothing prevents Christ's sudden return. Nothing prevents it. A pre-tribulation rapture, followed by identifiable a domino of events that are identifiable, was not the commonly embraced belief of the church before about 1860 A.D. About 1860 A.D. When a theologian named John Nelson Darby first popularized the pre-tribulation rapture. His concept was later included in the Schofield Study Bible, 1909, which really broadly popularized it, because that became a very, very popular study Bible. Darby was a decent theologian, smart guy. Uh, But if my understanding is correct, if my understanding is correct, the motivation behind Darby's pre-tribulation rapture was his strong personal conviction that Christians must somehow escape God's wrath and avoid tribulation. His motive behind it is Christians can't suffer God's wrath and must avoid the tribulation. We aren't going to avoid tribulation. What about the wrath? You know, Darby's had not been the prominent historical view of the Christian church previous to that But my beliefs do not come as a reaction to Darby's rapture nor as a defense of the early church who had many things, different things that they believed. Uh, My convictions are a result of the repeated warnings by Jesus Christ and by his apostles that his return will come on a day when neither believers nor unbelievers will expect it. People's lack of preparedness implies the horrific judgments on that day of the Lord. Revelation 16 again. Don't begin in in the tribulation period. They have a complete lack of preparedness for what falls on them, but that the period before Christ's return involves escalating lawlessness, debauchery, violence, these things that God's elect are forced to endure before His return. Return. That's a tribulation. It's for Christians a time of tribulation, not for unbelievers. This would imply Christians will be surrounded, if you can believe this, by a depraved society, sick and depraved society, similar to that of the days of Noah and of righteous Lot, Lot who was oppressed by their sensual conduct of unprincipled men and who felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. That's what Lot experienced before sudden judgment came. 2 Peter 2, verse 8. Noah, he was surrounded by violence and murder, if you can believe that. 
Lot was surrounded by the sexual immorality and homosexuality of his day. Lot's son-in-laws thought him to be joking when he came to them and warned that God's judgment was about to fall. Genesis 19, verse 14. Sodom, they were preoccupied with with marrying and giving in marriage, buying and selling, uh, eating and drinking. Even on the day that Lot was pulled out of Sodom, rescued by angels, sound familiar, only moments before judgment fell on Sodom. Only moments before. Quick pulling out by the angels right before judgment came. Jesus said it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Peter said they will be mocking the promise of Christ's return uh, that arrives suddenly like a thief, a day in which the whole earth is destroyed. Excuse me, destroyed. On the day that the Lord returns, unbelievers are not portrayed as having suffered bowls of judgment seen in Revelation 16. They, they haven't been pummeled with sores or scorched with the sun's fire. They haven't been pummeled by plagues of rivers of blood and creatures all dead in the oceans for the last three and a half years. That's not how it's portrayed. Instead, they're laughing. They're laughing. They're they're oblivious when the Lord suddenly returns on what appeared to them to begin that morning as a regular, ordinary day. That's what they thought it was. You know, Peter, Paul, and Jesus all warned Christians that the day of the Lord will arrive like lightning, unannounced. So they say again and again and again, be ready. There will not be any 3.5 years of warning for that day. I'm formulating my eschatology from the straight talk of Jesus in the Gospels and the clear language of the apostles in their epistles. And what we find in apocalyptic literature like Revelation had better conform to that. Revelation had better conform to what the apostles and Jesus say in in straightforward language. We don't formulate our eschatology, our primary eschatology, through speculations about apocalyptic literature and, and then force the epistles to absorb that and buy into that, to digest that, those things that we sometimes come up with in our colorful imaginations. Yeah, I, I'm really, I'm finally, I am coming to a, a comfortable place with eschatology. Um, it didn't come through speculating over Revelation. Speculating over their, those scenes of beasts and horns and heads. and uh, It didn't come through that, but through studying the Gospels. Through studying the Gospels. It is the day of the Lord that helps me to understand those bowls of judgment that are in Revelation chapter 16. I interpret Revelation chapter 16 by that. The fantastic image of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, which is identified in that text as the bride of Christ and the wife of the Lamb, built of gold, silver, and precious stones, that is framed within my understanding of our building Christ's church as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read it to you. According to the grace of God which is given to me like a wise master builder, the Apostle Paul says, I laid a foundation. 
another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. That's the fire again that comes on the day of the Lord. It will reveal everything that has been done. When the fire itself, will, uh, Paul says, will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work on, uh, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Now listen to this. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? We are God's temple. We are God's temple. I don't think anyone here would ever disagree with that, right? Speaking of God's temple. Remember that when we get back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Revelation then supplies a colorful painting of what we are currently building. Christ's church, and this we know for sure, it concludes, he is coming. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what we hope for. A couple of objections. A couple of objections uh, I'm going to attempt to answer before closing. I expect there are a number. That's why I'm leaving town next weekend. But it may be asked, if it is Christians who suffer tribulation, likely increasing tribulation as the day draws near, perhaps for some even a great tribulation, what then will unbelievers be experiencing as that final day of the Lord approaches. What will the unbelievers be experiencing? Those who mock the promise of Christ's coming will be experiencing God's wrath in those closing days of the tribulation immediately before his return. You're like, what? What? No, I just heard you say a few minutes ago, they're going to be laughing, they're going to be buying, they're going to be selling, carrying on, enjoying all kinds of dissipation and sexual immorality when the day of the Lord uh, comes. Exactly. Exactly. Their behavior is precisely what assures that they are under the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what does this wrath look like? Well, we need only keep reading to find out how they deny the existence of God, for they did not honor Him as God and give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Is there more proof of God's wrath? Yes, Romans says they dishonor their bodies that God gave to them. Anybody out there dishonoring bodies today? Surgeries that have no explanation as to reason, things that are happening. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's what God's wrath looks like. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Instead of serving God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They preferred to serve pets than God. That's what the wrath of God looks like. 
Is there further evidence of God's wrath? Well, yes. For this reason, God gave them over. God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, lesbianism. In the same way, men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, homosexuality. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. All of these things I've just outlined are evidence that the culture is under the wrath of God. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God, uh, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, meaning they don't only do these things, it says they're the type of people that also give hearty approval of those who practice them. It's not only those who practice everything we've outlined, it's everybody else that says, oh, that's your right. It's your body. That's evidence of God's wrath in the present. During the final phase of tribulation, whatever that is, Those last years, unbelievers will be experiencing the wrath of God, yet they will be so depraved, they won't even realize it. Meanwhile, Christians will be persecuted. We will suffer tribulation. Uh, But as God is pouring out his wrath on the culture, his spirit will uh, will preserve us through that wrath. We're preserved through the wrath. Uh, We don't have to be saved from the wrath. God will preserve us through wrath while we are present. And it appears, like Sodom, that America may just keep on laughing all the way until the day the Lord comes. Could be any day. The coming of Christ is imminent. Could occur at any moment. Conditions are ripe. There's nothing that must occur before the Lord can return. You say, wait a second. Wait a second. What about that passage that we read earlier, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Wait a second. Explain that. The apostasy has to come first, right? The man of sin must first be revealed. He's going to set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped. So the temple has to be rebuilt. Jesus can't come. Boy, you hear that a lot. You hear that a lot. Jesus can't come. We must be looking for some kind of sign. Anybody read Luke chapter 21? Jesus said, don't look for those signs. Quickly, please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to correct a couple misconceptions, common misconceptions on that passage. I hope this really enlightens you. And if you haven't, you know, gained really a whole lot today, hopefully this will help you understand it, just how slippery these things are from what you've been told. And we'll finish up. Paul is, in verses 1 and 2, once again discussing the coming of the Lord, parousia, and the day of the Lord, 
using them, again, interchangeably, the same timing. Paul says in verse 5, Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So apparently Paul has explained the coming of Christ to them before. Of course, we know that the parousia was a primary topic of his first letter to the church of Thessalonica. Use them together there too, the parousia and the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But they got confused. They got confused. A false teacher had introduced to them... uh, the belief that they'd missed the coming of Christ. That they've missed the day of the Lord. That this was their misunderstanding that the day had already come. That's what Paul's correcting. Verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the day of the Lord will not come until there is a great apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The first is simple. First is simple. The apostasy of the professing church has come. That's come. Homosexual pastors, churches that defend abortion, people who say they're Christian sit on high courts and say that it's, it's a woman's right to kill children. Um, they profess as Christians. It may even get worse. It's very likely the longer we're here, the worse it will get. But rest assured, we don't have to wait for an apostasy to occur. But the man of lawlessness must also be revealed. We have to ask, you know, what does this passage say about him being revealed? What, do we say, what does it say about it? Let's first consider his description. This, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. Who, verse 4 opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Well, your old Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Davenport, used to tell you, well, this is just clear here. Jesus can't come until the temple is rebuilt. The man of lawlessness first has to take a seat in there somewhere and display himself as God. And, of course, we learned growing up, Mrs. Davenport can never be wrong, right? Case closed. That must be it. No. One minor problem with Mrs. Davenport's interpretation. It is clearly observed in the Greek tense, though you also notice it in the English translation, if you pay attention. Rita caught this when I read it to her. I said, tell me what you see here. So I just read it to her, and she read it in the English. All of verse 4 is already fulfilled, folks. It's already fulfilled. He opposes and exalts himself. In about the year 50 AD, the Apostle Paul writes these verbs in the present tense. Fascinating? It's in your English, too. It gets even better when we inspect the phrase... So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, takes his seat is one Greek verb, kathizo, which is written in the errorist, active, infinitive Greek tense. Tense. Errorist implies a completed action of the past. Active indicates a present, ongoing behavior in 50 A.D., 
And the infinitive, well, we all know what the infinitive means, right? It's, it's an action that is persisting without measure. No end to it. Keeps going on. It's behavior that is past, it's present in 50 AD, and it persists. Displaying himself as God is also represented in the present and active tense all the way back in 50 AD. It was present and active. Uh, Does the temple of God have to be rebuilt? Folks, we are building it. We are building it. Adding souls to his church day after day. Only God knows when it's finished. We have no idea when it is finished. Will the Jerusalem temple be rebuilt? Where that gold dome is? Maybe. Maybe it will. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. If it is, I can tell you this, it will be an idolatrous temple of false worship that will substitute animals for the lamb that died on the cross. It will be a horrible thing. Christians will be so confused if God allows that to happen. We know that blood, the blood of bulls and goats can't remove sin. That's not something that we're looking forward to. A temple again. What then does all this suggest, folks? It is very, fairly simple. None of this describes an event that must occur at some point in the future. None of it does. It describes behavior by this man of lawlessness that has and continues to be ongoing behavior. Verse 4 does not guarantee a future event. It's meant to supply a character representation of Satan. That's what it is. The lawless one. I'm sorry. This is what he does. He sets himself up in the temple, presents himself as God. This is the work that he does. This is him, Paul is saying. It characterizes a continuous, ongoing pursuit. That of the Antichrist, I mean the son of destruction. We aren't waiting for him either. He's already been here for a while. Many Antichrists have come. 1 John 2.18, are we waiting for the Antichrist? Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. 1 John 2.22 Who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Present back when John was writing. 1 John 4.3 Any spirit that does not confess Jesus uh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Already in the world. Or there's a better one. Second John 7. Many deceivers have gone into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Present back in John's day. Antichrist is present and active in John's day. Continues to be active today. Continuing activity. Among numerous objectives... Scripture says that his goal is to deceive and deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. He tries to thwart God's redemption, his plan of redemption through his son. And throughout history, Satan has influenced men as antichrists. I'll give you just a couple. In the book of Esther, if you remember, remember that book, there was one named Haman. 
who called for a decree to go out in all the land that all Jews would be killed. This was so that, he, that the birth of the Savior would be thwarted if you can kill all the Jews. Um, Haman was an antichrist. Similar, similarly, in about 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes sought to eliminate all traces of the Jewish culture. Circumcision uh, he made punishable by death. Tried to eliminate the Jewish culture. He was an antichrist. Daniel speaks about him. He was an antichrist. Herod the Great, all right, he sought to kill the newborn king of the Jews, struck out against him, sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the boys so that he could kill the Christ. He was an antichrist. Peter tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's a spirit you don't want around you at all. Interfering with my progression to the cross and redemption. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of, the Jesus, uh, of Jesus, the son of perdition, John 17, verse 12, he was influenced by a spirit of the Antichrist. He was. There, there have been many. This, this isn't an exhaustive list. Uh, he was present in 50 AD. He remains present today. Uh, there is an apocalyptic portrait of Antichrist that, that is, and his perpetual work of lawlessness. There, there's a portrait of him painted in Revelation chapter 13. You can see who he is. Will he in the future be revealed to us? Yes. Yes, he will. When? I'm glad you asked. I promised last week I would give you a day. In verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end. How? By the appearance of his coming. Again, parousia. The parousia. When will he, the lawless one, the man of sin, that Antichrist, be revealed? My best set of research commentaries. It's the Expositor's Bible Commentary set. Outstanding resource. Uh, big 13-volume set written, written by a team of Greek experts and other biblical scholars, linguists, all kinds of stuff. They conclude... They conclude, it is very clear that with the way this passage is grammatically constructed in the Greek, this revealing of the lawless one must occur on the day of the Lord. Has to. Has to. When the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. Uh, The man of sin, he's been present, he's been active this whole time. Christ doesn't have to wait for another Antichrist to come in order for Christ to return. Will there arise another Antichrist? Maybe. Then many. He might be a bad one. If so, will we recognize him? Will we for sure recognize him? I don't know. But this revealing does not occur until Christ's return. Not according to this passage. Until then... The Antichrist continues to deceive and lead astray many, uh, possibly even the elect, Matthew tells us. 
all of his activity was present and active in 50 AD and is not confined to a future event out ahead of us. It's not confined to that. The man whose activity is in accord with the activity of Satan is not revealed before the day of the Lord. He is revealed in the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, by the appearance of his coming, the same day the restrainer, that is the Holy Spirit in his church, is taken out that morning. After we're caught up to to heaven, Christ pours out. God pours out his wrath. Christ comes in the sky. He slays that Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. And we shall look and say, Oh, that's who that was. Got him. Folks, the parousia, the coming of Christ, it is going to be a monumental day. A monumental day. The lesson then for Christians in Thessalonica, this is the close here. They were concerned that they had missed the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, all of this stuff that Paul told them. Paul assures them, you haven't missed nothing. It is not possible to miss the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. You can't possibly miss it. Stop worrying about it and comfort one another with these words. Here's a summary of what I've learned. Seven weeks of the Olivet Discourse. This we know for sure. One, there will come distress and tribulation for God's people. Even a great tribulation, at least for some. Two, many will be put to death for their faith, but not even a hair that belongs to them is going to perish eternally. Three, there will arrive many false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, who will attempt to deceive. There will also come antichrists, and will continue to come. Four, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, run. All right? Run. Five, when you marvel at how the Jews have persevered, be reminded that Christ's promise to return is true. Six, remain alert for the day of the Lord is imminent. He may return at any moment. Behold, I am coming quickly, he says. Seven, on that day, the angels will gather God's elect from the four corners of the earth into the sky. Eight, Then the Son of Man will appear in the clouds, and unbelievers from all the tribes of the earth will mourn over His appearing in the face of judgment. In the face of judgment. Nine, the world will suffer complete annihilation on that day. The old heavens and earth will be destroyed. Ten, Jesus is going to establish His kingdom under new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, we will return with him to inhabit it and remain with him always and forever. Amen. When he returns, we're confident that Christ will reign literally on earth for a thousand years. No question about that. No argument. He might even reign longer. Twelve. He'll explain the rest when we get there. Let's pray. Father, as all of this is an incredible amount to digest, Lord, and there's so many 
Um, there's so many views given of it. Even thinking of Second Thessalonians chapter two, Lord, where um, where people for years have been looking for something that that isn't there, that isn't in your word. It's not going to come, Lord. We know you're going to come, and that when you come, you're going to uh, you're going to save us, and that you're going to punish those who have opposed uh, the, even the thought of your coming. Father, help us to discern, to understand, to shed that which is not important or in error. Lord, yet us cling to that which we know for sure. Lord, until the end and until you come, we pray. Amen.